for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, time has definitely been on his side. Mick Jagger turns 80 today, and rock historian John Einerson joins me to talk about the Stones' famous frontman and the band's long relationship with Canada. The British Medical Journal has released a series of reports that takes a close look at this country's COVID-19 response and has called it the world expected more of Canada. It outlines some of the successes, but also points out several shortcomings and calls for a federal inquiry to seize on what went right, what went wrong, and how do we better prepare for any future public health emergency. But first, the Trudeau government went ahead with its cabinet overhaul today. With dozens changing roles, seven ministers turfed to make room for seven new ones. We look at the big moves, what they mean, and it comes as a new poll shows the Conservatives well ahead of the Liberals in popularity right across the country almost. So will the moves made today do anything to reverse the government's declining support? We'll start back in the nation's capital uh, tonight because earlier today, uh, a whole bunch of people, liberals, were at Rideau Hall to uh, form Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister's new cabinet. And it underwent that significant significant overhaul that we were talking about last night as predicted and reported. He uh, shuffled his cabinet really in an attempt to put a new face on his minority government. There have been a lot of scandals recently. It feels like they've lost control of this a little bit. Uh, the Conservatives, according to new polls, are surging in all parts of the countries. So seven new MPs into the cabinet, eight in their current jobs, and 23 shuffled into new roles or added have additional duties uh, added to their current portfolios. Here is the Prime Minister. This is a positive step in a moment of consequential impact in the world and in the country. We know times are challenging, but this is the team that is going to be able to continue the hard work, rolling up their sleeves and delivering for Canadians from coast to coast to coast. The Prime Minister, of course, major changes. Defence Minister Anita Anand has moved to the Treasury Board. Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair moves into Defence. Dominic LeBlanc will now lead public safety, taking over from Marco Mendocino. Of course, how to proceed with that China interference file will be top of his list. Minister of Immigration Sean Fraser has moved to a new expanded housing portfolio called Housing Infrastructure and Communities. Uh, That, of course, a big file, one that uh, the government has been struggling with. And all this as a new Ipsos poll. Uh, for Global News, suggests 37% of Canadians said they would vote for Pierre Polyev's Conservative Party if an election were held now. That's a four-point jump since February. And an abacus poll was even more dire, finding that only 19% of respondents thought the current government deserved to be re-elected. Imagine that. Uh, Pierre Polyev, of course, reacted to the shuffle this way today. It's funny, though. The one minister who was responsible for these failures didn't get moved, and that minister is Justin Trudeau. Well, he he would say that um, he wasn't going to be shuffled. Obviously, the prime minister. But if you look at the at sort of the stars of the show, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau, Christia Freeland, Melanie Jolie in uh, in foreign affairs, they're all still there. Um, meantime, why do they do this now? Global Ottawa reporter Mackenzie Gray put that blunt question to the prime minister: Is today's changes an admission that things have not gone well for your government in 2023? On the contrary. Uh, I'm excited about this team, and I'm excited about the work we're going to be able to do together. Right. Uh, Richard Johnston joins me now. He's a professor emeritus of political science and former Canada Research Chair in Public Opinion, Elections and Representation at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Thanks so much for your time tonight. Um, Good to be back. 
Yeah, I, I mean, sh- cabinet shuffles. I was looking back to sort of cabinet shuffles historically, and I think everyone's forgotten that Stephen Harper uh, – you know, had a big shuffle back in 2013, and that didn't help him in 2015 whatsoever. What did you make of this one? Any any big surprises for you in there? Anything that didn't make sense? Um, well, it's a puzzle about Anita Anand. Uh, you know, her reputation was that she delivered the goods on procurement, and it's not so clear that she delivered the goods in defense, but uh, there was a lot of work to do there. So going to Treasury Board is a bit of a puzzle, because basically she's now dealing with her fellow cabinet ministers. And I'm not sure what it signifies, if anything, that she's there. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. And Bill Blair is a strange choice, I thought, because he's had his own troubles in his files. Uh, and they move him into into defense at a time when it felt like there were so many things in defense that were going on. You have, obviously, NATO and the war in Ukraine. You have you know, sort of the the attempt to change the culture within the military. I don't know if, Bla- if Bill Blair is the, is the person for that gig. It's not obvious that he is, but then it's also not obvious who else is either. I mean, Ananda herself wasn't a, an absolutely obvious choice for the portfolio. I mean, it is, it's, it is a nightmare. I mean, on one hand, you do have the whole uh, cultural question in the armed forces, but then there's also the, I think, the equally large question of, what are they for? What is their role? How seriously do we really want to take them, given what are probably increasing alliance uh, requirements over the next two years? Right. When you look back at, at uh, Shuffle's past, uh, we talk about them. It's the middle of the summer, so if you're a political reporter or and such, there's not much going on in Ottawa. This is probably the big event. I mean, it will be the big event of the summer. This is a huge uh, overhaul of his cabinet. But one wonders if these actually have any impact, considering most people probably aren't paying much attention. And when they come back in September, they're going to f- see uh, the prime minister. They're going to see Christia Freeland. They're going to see Melanie Jolie. All the familiar faces will all be at the front of the, front of the line here. That's mostly true. I mean, I, I think it, it's still pretty significant. You know, there's there's finally a bunch of people who have been in the House for eight years are moving up. Uh, the word is that they're pretty competent people, so there's that. Uh, there's shuffles inside that uh, suggest a concern to getting strong ministers into important portfolios, like Dominic LeBlanc expanding his portfolio. He's just a guy who can he's, – he's got extremely good political uh, – sensitivities. Sean Fraser has uh, done particularly well in, in immigration and so and housing is a major challenge. So I suppose you could say that he's probably strengthened the quality of the members holding the key portfolios for the most part. The shuffle as such is not going to make any difference, I don't think, the public community. The question is whether they can actually kind of pull their act together and possibly explain why they're doing certain things better than they have in the recent past. Yeah, they, they've been struggling. It, it felt like for the last uh, six months or so specifically, they've really, especially since Pierre Polyev came along, I think uh, they've managed to, the Conservatives have managed to really hone their attacks and attack certain things a lot. And it felt like with other things going on as well, that the uh, the Liberals were really, the government was really struggling to get its message across. And it feels like this is their attempt to try to reset that somewhat. Looking at who was promoted to where, one gets the impression they think affordability, obviously, is going to be the big issue going forward. What, what I think might be difficult is a lot of what they're trying to control is kind of out of their hands. Yes. 
I mean, there's there's billions of dollars in the budget for housing, and very little of it's being spent. So I guess between LeBlanc at Intergovernmental Affairs and Fraser at Housing, the hope is that these people can somehow bend the elbows of people who need to cooperate for housing to be built. Although, you know, the timelines on housing, even when it's done effectively and efficiently, are long. But, yes, that's that's clearly a focus. Yeah. When when you look at some of what they've changed, too, I mean, if we if we presume, given the NDP's reaction today, they seem very sanguine about the whole thing, um, that that we're going to have this minority government in place probably till twenty twenty five. I know there's been lots of speculation about an election beforehand, but I don't see any reason for them to do that unless they think they're going to improve their fortunes. That that doesn't seem to be the case right now. Um, that this is very much. I mean, they, they 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 phrase it as a cabinet built to help Canadians, but really, what the, what this cabinet is built to do is try to win the next election, right? Well, they would say there's no necessary conflict between those things, but I think they're conscious of the fact that that to a certain extent, um, unfairly, but nonetheless, Poliev has found kind of the magic buttons in his attacks on the government. He's he's put together a populist message that is um, kind of neutral on most of the actual substantive policy choices, but um, has a kind of unsparing and accurate targeting of the weak points of the government. They they haven't been subject to this kind of scrutiny and criticism, as focused as it is, really since the government was first formed. And so I I think they, they feel that they have to first of all, kind of stop the leakage in uh, their inability to explain themselves, in cabinet ministers who uh, aren't on top of their files, and possibly, just possibly, delivering some hard goods on the ground. Yeah, there's a certain irony in here because, of course, what Justin Trudeau took advantage of uh, back in 2015 was very much the same thing. He didn't exactly come at at a conservative government based on their policy failures, or he sort of came at them at this perception that it was the end of mean, here come the sunny ways, and now we have the everything is broken, here comes me to fix it narrative. Neither of them have much substance to them at all, but they do seem to both have, in some ways, tapped in to the national sentiment in a way that is very hard to policy your way out of. Yeah, I mean, the, the Canada is broken narrative is the one, obviously, that Polyever is pushing. He, he may come to regret that in a few years if he becomes prime minister. Uh, the, the, the fact is, though, that uh, in the context of, of COVID, and notwithstanding the British Medical Journal damnation of Canadian policy, uh, much of which was about the provinces uh, or about Canada and the world, as opposed to Canada dealing with what the federal government could actually deal with domestically, there's a sense in which, in many ways, actually, they have delivered a lot of stuff. It is a, This government has produced the largest expansion of social policy since the mid-60s. It has driven down the rate of child poverty dramatically. So there's actually, on the social policy front, a huge body of accomplishments that they don't seem very good at explaining. Uh, And these are not accomplishments that are simply the product of the agreement with the NDP. Most of these things were done before the confidence and supply agreement was struck and would have probably have been done anyway. So they've actually done a lot of stuff. Uh, And to the extent that things are kind of falling apart 
on the ground, much of that is on agendas that are out of their control, particularly within the provinces. So there's a sense in which they actually delivered a lot of stuff, but it's as if they've been reluctant to talk about it. Frankly, the press hasn't talked much about it because it's too much preoccupied with inside baseball. Um, and meanwhile, the things that are sort of falling apart or at least are struggling to get put back together post-pandemic, um, they are just perfectly positioned for Polyev's attack. Mr. Johnson is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about uh, the cabinet shuffle, but uh, some news late today that Pat Carney, a name that maybe if you're not in BC, you might not recognize as much. She served as a cabinet minister in Brian Mulroney's government. She was a senator for a very long time, but she certainly blazed a trail in BC, Richard, didn't she? Hello? Yes, she, uh, Pat Carney certainly blazed a trail in BC. Uh, the signal dropped there for a moment. Yes, she did. I mean, she had three very important portfolios in the span of four years. Tell me a bit about her then. You mean, at the time, I, mean, I think what was what was important about Pat Carney was that she was a conservative, right? And that was different. Um, and so she even talked about how that, you know, that didn't always put her in good stead in BC. But with that, she managed to, she was the first woman in many of the portfolios that she had as a minister. She was the first woman in every one of them, in fact. Uh, you're right, actually. The, the first thing that struck me was when she was in Parliament, there were no liberals from B.C. Indeed, there was no liberal west of Winnipeg. Lloyd Axworthy was the westernmost liberal. Uh, Art Phillips right. had been the MP for center. Or a center, conservative, right? But she, she sat as a conservative under, under, under Brian Mulroney, of course. Yes. yes. I mean, but there was no liberal, I should say, west right. of, west of uh, Winnipeg. So, you know, she eliminated the last one, Art Phillips. So this is a point right. in which B.C. was, well, actually, B.C. was predominantly NDP federally at the time, with the Conservatives holding all the other seats, and certainly they controlled the west side of Vancouver. And, and this was a time in which all three parties were competitive in Vancouver Centre, which is strange to think of when you look at the situation now. Um, so... That's that's one thing. Um, the other was that she came to politics mainly from journalism. I mean, she'd had other sort of side hustles, so to speak, but she was mostly thought of as a journalist. Uh, and uh, she very much stood on her own as a person. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a you know the, there wasn't a spouse that was talked about, for example. So right. she was very much a, an independent woman and independent-minded and. She didn't mind letting her fellow cabinet ministers uh, know her opinion of things. Yeah, uh, well, the, yeah. she, well, she also, you know, the, her, her basically, one of her first acts as a senator was to vote against the compromise on abortion that her successor at center, Kim Campbell, had negotiated. Uh, it was partly thanks to Pat Carney that Canada actually still has no legislative recognition of abortion. Right. It's just there. Richard, we'll leave it at that. Richard Johnson, thanks so much. You're welcome. 
it's time for our journalism corner down on the corner, of course, when we speak to a journalist uh, somewhere in the country doing interesting stuff. So we thought we'd head to Ottawa tonight. Before we go there, though, I've been asking you about your favorite Rolling Stones songs or your favorite Sinead O'Connor songs. We're going to sort of honor the longevity of uh, Mick Jagger tonight as he celebrates his 80th birthday and celebrate the life, too, of Sinead O'Connor, who uh, her death was announced today at the age of 56, sadly. Um, and uh, some of you, Janet and St. Albert had a really good suggestion here that every time we talk politics, we should use a Rolling Stones song as our descriptor. So for Justin Trudeau, it could be Jumping Jack Flash uh, for his cabinet shelf. Every time Polyev speaks, uh, it's under his skin because everything gets under his skin, of course. Um, Catherine and Surrey Shattered is her favorite a Stone song, that track from Some Girls. And uh, Vian Edmonton says, my favorite Rolling Stone song has always been Satisfaction. Of course, I don't think you're alone on that one. Well, let's go back to the nation's capital. Again, today, big cabinet shuffle overhaul. Now, these are the sorts of things that happen in the summer. Uh, people who are in my, you know, my business and in sort of the chattering class, as we like to say, talk about it as if it's really important because it's really the only thing going on right now uh, in politics. And then everyone sort of isn't paying attention to it because they're all out doing different things. It's summer, right? Summer in Canada. People aren't paying that much attention. And when people do start paying attention again, perhaps come September, they're going to notice, wait a second. The Prime Minister is still Justin Trudeau. The Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister is still Christia Freeland. I think Melanie Jolie. Melanie Jolie is still the Minister of Foreign Affairs. This looks like an awful lot of familiar faces to me. You'd be right. But this is a government that's had a very tough uh, six months, six to 12 months, more or less. Uh, specifically, this last winter term was a really difficult one for them trying. It was just scandal plagued. It felt like with a new opposition leader in place that they were just being pushed onto the back foot for months and months and months on end. And it was starting to reflect in the polls. There's a new poll out today that shows them well back right across the country to put Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives um, at every age group. And some real unpopularity too. Now, Pierre Polyev remains pretty unpopular, uh, believe it or not, for a brand new leader. But Justin Trudeau's popularity ratings are also pretty low. Anyway, here's how he explained why he brought seven new MPs into his cabinet of 40, I think it is, kept eight in their current jobs and shuffled 23 into new rules, new roles, Rafi. And making sure that we have the best possible team aligned to respond to Canadians' challenges with the supports necessary, but also show that optimism, that ambition for getting us through these consequential times and building a brighter future for everyone. That's what we're focused on. It's interesting because, I mean, that's exactly the kind of messaging he was using when he got elected, right? That so-called sunny ways. That's what it was. What's difficult to understand, what's difficult to, to figure out now is, does that message, which carries almost, there is almost nothing of substance in what he says, it's simply sort of feeling, does it work? Because as my last guest was pointing out, this Liberal government has delivered on quite a bit, you know, certainly on the social program side, has delivered quite a bit. Um, you know, our COVID response, we'll talk about that in the next half hour. Uh, you know, some have criticized it, but again, I mean, it's been a tough time to govern. And, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of them, but, you know, they haven't delivered on something. So who's still in place? I mentioned Christia Freeland, uh, Melanie Jolie in foreign affairs. Stephen Gilboa is still in environment. That might make some people on the prairies unhappy. Here's what Christia Freeland had to say today. We have to deliver the homes, the infrastructure, the jobs, the economy, the investment for a growing country. 
Right. So I think that gives you a pretty firm idea of what this was all about. Again, that Abacus uh, poll that we saw today, uh, 2,500 respondents more or less, saw the Conservatives leading the Liberals by 10 points, 38 to 28, right across the country, which is pretty significant. Uh, Joining me now is political Ottawa correspondent Nick Taylor-Vassey. Welcome back, Nick. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So tell me about today. I mean, I was we were talking about this yesterday. I remember, you know, it can be pretty quiet if you're the only person staffing the bureau in Ottawa in the middle of the summer. It can be a little slow. And then along comes the cabinet shuffle and the whole place just lights up. What was it like today? Oh, yeah. I got up at 5 a.m. It's like sort of a mix between the Super Bowl and the Santa Claus parade for us in Ottawa. And so it's sort of the most exciting thing that happens to us all summer when we're lucky enough to get a cabinet shuffle. And this one was bigger than any in recent memory, uh, particularly in the in the Trudeau government. So there was uh, there were a lot of notes to trade yesterday, a lot of rumors flying around, like a lot of rumors flying around. And it turned out a lot of them were right. It was quite a quite a big <laughs> shuffle, although a lot of people did keep their jobs. And so I, I imagine you and I are going to talk a lot about who was sh- who was shuffled, but also who wasn't. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting is just how much it was uh... – how much was was leaked? I mean, I mean, we basically knew almost everything uh, yesterday, right? But I mean, the reason why we do this, I mean, I remember when David Emerson uh, crossed the floor, and I mean, there's every once in a while you get those big surprises at these cabinet uh, shuffles. This wasn't one of them necessarily. I mean, there was things that we kind of already knew. Uh, what was the mood like? Because one of the things I always found really telling is when you look around the room, everyone puts on their best face when they have to go up and take their oath and everyone hugs the PM, at least this PM. I don't think they, I don't remember them hugging Stephen Harper back in the day. Um, but, the, you know, there's that sort of, they put on a brave face. But what was it like just in the crowd? Did people look, was there some unhappiness there with what was going on? I would describe it as there were some facial expressions that were difficult to read. Um, I, I, I don't want to pass judgment on whether or not half a smile is, is, is half a smile and, and, and what that meant about, say, Seamus O'Regan keeping his labor portfolio and adding the seniors portfolio instead of maybe getting a, a job that a lot of people in town thought he deserved. Now, no one was really specific about which particular job he, he ought to be promoted to, but uh, he pretty much stood pat and uh, he didn't look absolutely thrilled to be there. But then again, maybe he's just a guy in that room. It's an uncomfortable room. It's a ballroom. The governor general's house is the place. No one ever really feels all that comfortable because of the big fancy building. So that could be it. But there were some, there were some moves that got people talking um, and, and that got people wondering if, if, if certain ministers had upset the prime minister or, or done something to, to deserve not just demotion, uh, but but a shuffling to a place where they can maybe be seen, neither seen nor heard. Right. Uh, I think I think we're talking about Anita Anand, <laughs> which we was, sure are. Who I, yeah, who sure I, are. Who I've, I've interviewed before, right? I mean, I interviewed her uh, when she was sort of new to that defense role. And again, she's a very competent minister. She does her homework. She knows her files. And it feels like a really strange time. In fact, uh, we have uh, Justin Trudeau actually talking about Bill Blair, who's taking over her, that job uh, from Anita Anand as she gets shuffled off into the wilderness that is Treasury Board. Here's what Trudeau had to say. His uh, leadership on emergency preparedness these past years has seen uh, exactly how much Canadians need our armed forces to be there to step up with the right tools, the right abilities, but also the right culture change that uh, Anita Anand has uh, started in such strong ways. It actually started uh, back under Minister Sajjan. 
Right. Uh, so he mentions the move sort of uh, in a circuitous kind of way, but it was a weird one. And I was wondering what her attitude would be, what her impression would be like, because I think she's a real, she's one of those top five ministers. I think she probably saw herself that way. And treasury to me is not a top five job. I know this is all inside baseball, but this kind of matters in the long run because she was one of the government stars. Well, I think that's why it does substantively matter. I mean, Anita Anand came in as a as a rookie member of parliament and within a few months before anybody really knew her name it was her job to buy us all the vaccines we needed to save our lives so she succeeded at that and then was uh sent to defense to take on you know the relatively difficult issue of changing the entire military culture and seemed to be on the way to making some progress there. She's known as a very pragmatic minister, somebody who is well-briefed. Uh, you, you alluded to that. And she she knows how to read contracts, which I think is not a trait you yes. get in a lot of cabinet ministers. It was important for vaccine procurement. It will be important in Treasury Board. Uh, she's a she's a team player. I mean, she's she's a good liberal. She'll, she'll do the job. She'll, I'm sure she'll do it competently. And when you talk to people about Treasury Board, the, the kind of truism in Ottawa is that it is an extraordinarily important department, especially for a government, maybe this government, maybe not this government, definitely past governments that are intent on fiscal prudence and, and that's minding the tiller. Um, she, I think a lot of people who know her will say she may take that job seriously, which makes it important. But as you've said, it is wilderness. It's not the place you go to make headlines. In fact, it's the place you go so that people in Ottawa forget who you are. People don't usually go there by choice. No. And is is there anything to suggest that there was some sort of rift here? Because I looked back and, you know, certainly she's been, you know, she's been front and center when it comes to NATO and Ukraine, and she seemed to be doing a good job. I think she's not one to push back. A uh, few ministers are these days are. Uh, but I didn't get the sense that she'd done anything. So why move her then? And, and why bring, no, no offense to, you know, I used to interview Bill Blair when he was the chief of police in Toronto. And, you know, I don't think he's, I, I just don't see him in that role. But maybe that's, that's just me. Well, I, I just on that very quickly, I, I'm a bit incredulous at the Prime Minister of Canada describing Bill Blair as the face of culture change in any kind of law enforcement context. I mean, in fairness to Bill Blair, he, he knows how those systems work. Uh, he was a police chief. He had a long policing career. But to suggest that he's the man, and emphasis on the word man, to lead culture change in the military is, well, I mean, it's a choice. Um, but on Anita Anand, there, there was speculation. And, of course, in Ottawa, we deal in that like, yes, indeed. like drugs. Yes. Uh, around the Liberal Convention in May, that the Prime Minister's office had kind of sent a message to her directly uh, or to her office or people who support her not yet real, but definitely in the future real run for the Liberal leadership, that she should maybe cool it a bit. And she had been a minister who was running a lot of fundraisers which in liberal circles is a double-edged sword because if you're raising money for the party, that's a good thing. But if you're raising money for the party in a way that promotes yourself too much or instead of the money going to the party, it is going to not yourself, but to maybe a member of parliament and they're riding and they may be in your corner because you help them raise money right. specifically for their riding. You know, it starts when you're building alliances like that, um, it, it, Maybe that rubs the prime minister who's not ready to leave the wrong way. Now, that, that is speculation, but it was a story reported in the mainstream media, and I trust my report, my, my colleagues in the parliamentary press gallery. So I, I'm, I'm sure they had good sources on that. 
Um, we haven't heard a lot about that since, but that was something that came up right around the time that just about every prominent liberal was in town for that convention in May. Justin Trudeau has admitted that after eight years of inflationary spending that has exploded the cost of living, eight years of carbon taxes that drive up your gas, heat, and groceries, eight years of catch-and-release policies that make our streets dangerous, and eight years of doubling the cost of housing, his government is a failure. Yeah, there you got Pierre Polyev. Now, that's been his line all the way along. Blame the prime minister for absolutely everything. When, of course, if you're a rational thinking human being, you know, hey, no prime minister is that powerful, right? I mean, but there are people who, you know, it's effective, obviously, uh, because people are looking around them. And True, the cost of living is going up. This is not a uniquely Canadian problem, but there are Canadian uh, there are Canadian characteristics to it, so to speak. Uh, Nick Taylor Vassi is with us this half hour. He's Politico's Ottawa correspondent. We're talking about the cabinet shuffle today. But as this shuffle was about to happen, some new polling lands, uh, some from Global, some from Abacus. Uh, Certainly the Abacus data showed the Conservatives really kind of pulling ahead. This is one of the first polls I'd seen in a very long time that showed the Conservatives ever so slightly in majority territory. Now, this is one poll, so never take one poll too, too seriously. But what was the, that must have landed with a bit of a, a bit of an explosion on the ground today as everyone was getting ready to cover this. Yeah, I think the important thing about that poll for the Liberals was that there was almost no good news in it. Um, Down 10 nationally, behind Conservatives in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and tied in the uh, the Atlantic provinces. Uh, The Atlantic provinces being maybe the the most concerning signal of all in that that's, that's just been a bastion of Liberal support. That has been a region that threw its lot in with Justin Trudeau in 2015 when he swept the region and has more or less stayed with him since. And the only region the Conservatives weren't winning was Quebec. And in that region, the bloc was ahead of the Liberals. And so uh, on the on the horse race, they're behind. And then on the, some of the issue polls, uh, there's a whole bunch of blaring alarms because uh, the on the economy and on cost of living, the Liberals are far behind the Conservatives. In fact, on the cost of living, they're in third place behind the NDP on uh, the respondents saying they, you know, who they trust most. The Conservatives are well ahead. 47% of people said they trust the Conservatives on the economy, which is, which is not inconsistent with, with general Canadian political trends. Conservatives typically do better in that, uh, in that kind of question. But what was wild for the Liberals is that they weren't at you know, 41% or 36% or they were at 16% in that question. So uh, a lot of bad news in that one poll. And as you say, one poll is one poll but they have been consistently behind conservatives, even if statistically tied or whatever. They have not been ahead really in months, and especially since Pierre Polyev became leader last September. Yeah, and what's interesting about it, of course, is that if you listen to Pierre Polyev, and he's always been a really good, uh, he's very disciplined in his messaging. I mean, he makes, he he goes off sometimes and says things that come back. Uh, you know, certainly when he starts to speak his mind, things can go a bit wrong. Uh, but, but when it comes to the messaging, he's been doing this a long time. He is very disciplined at it. And this idea that somehow the cost of everything is this government's fault is interesting because it's judo in some ways. This is a government that came in and said, you know, the middle class and all those who aspire to be part of it. And here we are eight years later, and Polyev is right. Things aren't better for those people aspiring to move up. They're worse. And that's a very potent message to deliver, even if a lot of what he says has absolutely no solutions involved. I don't know what a gatekeeper is, but I, I guess he'll <laughs> I guess he'll explain during the election. But none of what Pierre Polyev says is re- remotely sounds like a solution to any of these problems. It's just anger, but it works. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a version of what Stephen Harper's conservative threat, Stéphane Dion, in 2008, when Stéphane Dion first wanted to slap a carbon tax uh, on, well, put a price, you know, just price carbon for the first time. The conservatives then called it a tax on everything, and people complained about it. They said it's not a tax on everything. It's not even a tax. And meanwhile, while they're explaining, uh, Stephen Harper won that election, and Stephen Dion's political career is more or less at well, it wasn't totally over, but it was his dreams of being prime minister effectively ended. And it's, so it's a version of that, but the way Polyev does it is is more shameless and more finely tuned, I think. And he would blame yes. Justin Trudeau for the rain falling if the if the weatherman said it was supposed to be sunny. And he'd find a way to make it a little bit believable. And, and the one thing that when you talk to Polyev's people, they stress, they insist, is that when he says something, there is a report somewhere behind it that has some kind of factual basis. So it may not be believable we may make fun of him for from time to time because he is just so willing to pin every single ill on Justin Trudeau, but he does take facts seriously. Uh, Whether or not his interpretation of those facts is in good faith is a totally different, of course, political argument, all about rhetoric and about uh, good faith, bad faith and everything in between. But but he he does, (laughs) absolutely. But he does come from a place where he, he'll read a report and he'll remember every fact in that report. And he'll, he he writes a lot of his own speeches. He contributes heavily to everything that comes out of his mouth. Uh, His, his, his comm staff, they they say they sometimes just kind of point him in the right direction. You know, they, they, uh, they, they, they're guardrails, but he, he runs the show and, it's uh, it's quite something to behold because his discipline didn't start when he ran to be conservative leader. It basically started when he was an intern in the Reform Party in the late 90s, talking about freedom and making a better Canada in the last liberal government. So it's, um, you know, he's not stopping yeah. anytime soon. Yeah, he, he's young still by, by political standards, but he's been doing this for he's a vet in every other way. Uh, Nick, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is a really interesting study that's been done by the prestigious British Medical Journal, using, uh, by the way, scientists from all over the place, including uh, mainly in Canada. The title of the lead editorial uh, of their in-depth review into this country's COVID response sums it up pretty nicely. It's called The World Expected More of Canada. It's broken down into different sections. It explores different aspects of how the country responded, taking into consideration that a lot of this is provincial, right? We understand that. But it came up with some pretty stark conclusions. For example, it found that Uh, Canada's emergency response during COVID-19 was impaired by longstanding weaknesses in the public health and healthcare systems, including fragmented health leadership across the federal, provincial, and territorial governments. In other words, a lack of communication and a lack of coordination, a lack of data. A lot of things that saw, and if you lived in a different province, as I do, my parents are in Ontario or Quebec and people I know all over the country, everyone was going through something different when it came to COVID response. Why was that? So what emerges is the image of a country that was ill-prepared in many ways, with outdated data systems, as this is directly from the report, poor coordination and cohesion, and blindness about its citizens' diverse needs. And what saved us, apparently, according to this uh, review, was a largely willing and conforming populace that withstood stringent public health measures and achieved among the world's highest level levels of vaccination coverage. In other words, it says, Canadians delivered on the pandemic response while its governments faltered. And you would think that compared with the shambolic UK response, as it puts it, a very British word, and the chaos and divisiveness in the US, that we seem to have risen to the occasion of COVID-19. But we wouldn't know because there's been no pandemic inquiry established by the federal government to find out. And 
the review goes on to say that in particular is a mistake. Well, Dr. Tanya Bubala is professor and dean in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University, one of those who contributed to the BMJ's report on Canada's COVID-19 response, and she joins me now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Uh, thank you for having me on the show, Ben. This was a am really interesting... The question, am I allowed to answer the question about your, your favorite song? Absolutely, of course. That's the whole point. It's out there always for everyone to answer. (laughs) Oh, that is a great song. That's a good one. Paint it it black? Yeah, that's a great. That's a great one. Uh, I can't get no satisfaction. I don't want to use Stone's references to talk about COVID, but I can't get no satisfaction. Seemed to have been a bit of the theme of this one, and it was interesting because there's been a lot of sort of there's been a lot of spin of it since it came out. But I read through it. I thought it was very sober and very concise, and it sort of boils down to some very clear issues, which is communication, coordination, and trying to make sense of a federal system of trying to centralize something within a uh, a sort of a fractured system. And you had a real role in sort of looking at some of why that um, fracturing within our healthcare system had some negative consequences. Yes, um, I think you, you summed it up and summed up the reports in the editorial um, very clearly. So the, the paper that, that we focused on was about our outdated and outmoded data infrastructure and the fact that um, there is no mechanism for our central agency for public health, the Public Health Agency of Canada. Um, it can coordinate responses, but it, it can't require um, adherence to um, guidance, and it can't force um, the sharing of, uh, of data um, for and analytics and for, for use. And so that, that is a failure um, and is part of our, you know, federated structure of governance. Um, and you pointed out that this was meant to have changed after 2003. Most of us will remember back to what happened during SARS, and even though that was more isolated, clearly, uh, that some of these issues were meant to have been tackled back then for the next time, which was, this was the next time. Yes, this was the next time. So there were some things that were tackled. So the Public Health Agency of Canada, as an example, did not exist. That came out of the recommendations um, following the first uh, SARS outbreak in 2003. There were also some provincial um, health authorities that were um, that were established, like um, Public Health Ontario. Um, you know, BC already had, um, you know, BC uh, Centers for Disease Control, which is another provincial agency. But, you know, you would think that we could have worked through our, our data infrastructure in ways that would enable us to provide the evidence for a more coordinated and consistent response across the country. What was the impact of that? I think a lot of us know it anecdotally, depending where we are in the country, because we would have known that within our own jurisdiction what was going on compared to others. Uh, but it meant a, a very fractured system, and it meant a lot of it felt like there was just a lot of messaging going on, and a lot of it was kind of getting mixed and lost. And that's the last thing you want in an emergency, even a prolonged one. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a tension between a localized response that meets community needs and a sort of a centralized command and control structure, right? So there's a, there's a trade-off between those two systems. The problem is that we kind of had neither. We didn't have the nuance in the data to provide people with the information at the community level about um, taking, making their own decisions about um, their, their individual or family level or community level risk. 
Uh, some of that came down to um, concerns about sharing data at very local levels due to um, privacy or stigmatization. But I'd like to point out as well that there's a lot of things in Canadian data infrastructure that are simply not collected. Now, we know that the impacts of the pandemic in terms of case counts and, uh, and deaths um, and economic burden were not equitably shared across the populations. But we don't collect the data that would enable us to unpack those social and structural inequities that could help us make better decisions um, to ensure that, um, you know, that you don't have great, greatly disparate impacts across populations. I, I know, you know in for general, example, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that the most impacted populations were uh, fundamentally uh, racialized uh, communities, communities that worked um, in essential services, um, healthcare workers, uh, people that lived in uh, in crowded uh, or multi-generational housing. These are the communities that were most impacted, and yet we didn't have the nuance in the data to be able to address those factors. Right. I know there's quite an emphasis, too, on long-term care. We know that was a real issue, mm-hmm. and that, again, there had been warnings for for years that this was a very vulnerable part of the healthcare system and would be in trouble if something big happened, and it was. Yes, and so the the number of cases in long-term care were about 3% of COVID cases, but about 40%, 46% of deaths. Um, Canada fared worse than many other countries in terms of its response in long-term care facilities. And this is one of the criticisms that we have received about the reports calling for a, an inquiry because there have been many inquiries and reports on failings in long-term care over time. And yet we were still not, uh, we did not address those recommendations and we were not prepared to respond in the context of long-term care facilities and the outbreak of a um, of a global pandemic. For listeners just to understand, because for someone not familiar with the British Medical Journal, the, the interest of, of, of the publication to take a good look at this, uh, to take a good look at Canada's response, to identify where the shortcomings were, uh, I mean, it makes for, for pretty tough reading because I think for a long time we sort of felt, of course, the response here was pretty decent. But when you look at it that way, you realize that it was despite some of what was going on, not because of it. Yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, Canada is often held up as as an exemplar, and um, I know that our our public health system is something that, in general, we are quite proud of, and that we take quite a bit of of, of kudos internationally for um, you know access to healthcare and healthcare services, um, you know, despite failings in this in the system. And so, I think it is important for us to be reflective at the end of the day to take the opportunities to learn lessons to strengthen our public health system. Our public health system only receives about 5% of of healthcare spending. Um, So in the context of the economic burden and costs of the pandemic, we underfund uh, public health and our capacity for public health uh, response. So I think that's one lesson that can be taken. Um, The other piece is that there isn't the inclusivity of a diversity of voices at decision-making tables. 
and a, a, a paucity of evidence outside of the context of kind of case counts, sort of standard epidemiological evidence around the social and economic impacts um, of the pandemic to be able to make more nuanced decisions um, in, in, the, in the context of public health threats. We're talking about something serious this half hour, which is some very interesting work she and many others have done uh, for the British Medical Journal, who published a very long report on Canada's COVID-19 response and found some certainly some lacking when it came to coordination, when it came to data that was collected, uh, sort of a scattershot approach. And that basically summed it up by saying Canadians did their part by being by obeying the rules, essentially getting vaccinated and, and all that. But the government's response left some to be desired. How to fix it? Let's have a public inquiry. It's says it's a mistake that we haven't had one yet um tell me a bit about that that because that comes through loud and clear in the report uh essentially that what canada really needs is to sit down and figure this out it feels like there's been some resistance to it so far though yeah and i i'd I'd like to uh acknowledge that we are a little bit of a land of pilot projects uh, reports and recommendations true uh, and so I, I think that there's some skepticism about an independent public inquiry. That said, we had one for SARS when 44 people died. And we have some accountability to the 53,000 Canadians that died during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there are 5 million cases um, of, of various um, severity, including um, long COVID uh, impacts uh, over time. Um, so, you know, I, I think that a public inquiry, if done right, and here I'm not talking about a bunch of experts, you know, sitting around and having having a conversation, um, or a bunch of politicians doing some finger pointing um, with 2020 hindsight. I'm talking about thinking through what we can do that can be implemented in practical and real time in preparation for future health, public health threats. And also um, that whole point about inclusivity of voices. I think this is an opportunity to start to rebuild some of the public trust that was lost through um, inconsistencies in public health measures over time by having, um, you know, not just experts, but the public included in the inquiry. Um, And maybe that is a platform to start to rebuild some deliberative fora where we can have difficult conversations about the direction of our healthcare, our healthcare systems, and the trade-offs that need to be made by public health in the context of a pandemic. Right. And we've seen it done in the UK or it's underway in the UK. I, I know I've been watching a little pieces of it here and there. I'm not sure where it's at. I haven't been following it closely, but it's being done. It would feel if you have a publicly funded healthcare system and you've just gone through this incredible shock to that system and this incredible shock to public health, you would think that it would make sense to sit down and at least have some sort of national conversation about what went right and what went wrong. It, it feels like, I mean, I, you're right. The mandate of it might be difficult. Um, you know, we've had a million inquiries over, about a ton of stuff in this country and they get ignored and people get upset. But it feels like this one is ripe for at least a conversation about it instead of sort of saying, well, that wasn't pleasant and then moving on as we seem to be doing now. I know there's things going on that's a bit unfair, but still. Yeah, and I, I think it's also we have have an opportunity um, to take advantage of one of the weaknesses of the public health response, which was this um, diversity of approaches across different jurisdictions um, with the implementation of different public health mandates from masking to school closures 
to, um, you know, vaccination, vaccination mandates, vaccination rollouts. We have kind of a bit of a natural experiment um, that was created across the country, uh, not necessarily intentionally, where we have the opportunity to, uh, to, to take lessons and do some introspection. Um, I think it's, it's going to be, um, it's, it's going, it's needed and there's, there needs to be a little bit of bravery on the, on the part of uh, public health to be reflective um, about what has happened over the past few years. Yeah, it certainly feels it. Uh, Dr. Bubala, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Ottawa on Monday announced that they're restricting the conditions under which it will allow subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Here is Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo on that. And what we're eliminating are federal support that would that are directed at the oil and gas sector and that would allow that gives the oil and gas sector an, an economic advantage over other sectors, uh, and in that case, to, to produce oil, gas or coal. Right. Okay. Now, there's a lot of debate over what exactly this all means, right? For those who are very much on the environmental side of this, any subsidy is wrong. For those who very much support the oil and gas industry, any threat to the subsidies is wrong. So let's try and clear this up. What Gilbo had to say, he wouldn't say or couldn't say how much the new framework would actually reduce financial support to the industry because it would still be available through crown corporations like Export Development Canada. But, uh, Gilbo says, restrictions on, restrictions on funding would come as soon as next year. Uh, there are some rules that have been released. They should be Subsidies would be allowed if they support clean energy, if they reduce greenhouse gas emissions or have a credible plan to achieve net zero uh, by 2030. Subsidies aiding Indigenous involvement in industry would continue, and those that support services to remote communities uh, would continue. Um, Here's Gilbo again. This is no longer a policy niche for environmental campaigners. Getting rid of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies is now the common sense bottom line for economists who want to align capital in an efficient and effective way to clean growth opportunities. Right. Here's the problem with that, though, right? It can't punish people. So, you know, it, it depends where the subsidy, if they're inefficient subsidies, fine. Uh, we, this, by the way, does make us the first G20 country to release that framework on inefficient subsidies. But this becomes very political. Keep in mind, I mean, oil, natural gas, and coal companies worldwide, they get hundreds of billions of dollars a year in tax breaks and other subsidies and so on. Some don't like to call them subsidies and so forth. But this is what it's really meant to do is to try to get folks or to at least drive down or, or promote cleaner energy to drive down emissions, right? That's all it is. And why would you be spending money? Why would you be giving corporations that make a lot of money more money? Well, we thought we'd go out and find someone who has an outsider's view of this so we don't get into those usual political squabbles here in Canada. And uh, my next guest has spent years looking to the practice of subsidizing fossil fuels right around the world, how best to eliminate the so-called inefficient ones, but also to help work with industry and government to make sure that they're collaborating on solutions that people aren't punished. David Victor is a professor of innovation and public policy at the University of California at San Diego, and he joins me now. David, thanks. Ben, terrific to be with you. This is a I mean, every, fuel subsidies or fossil fuel subsidies mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But for the purposes of this, um, we're really talking about in a country like Canada, we're specifically talking about breaks to industry. Is that right? Yeah, in particular, we're talking about specific kinds of breaks, what are called uh, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So these are fossil fuel subsidies that have the only purpose of making fossil fuels 
cheaper without um, helping reduce the emissions associated with fossil fuels. And the major motivation for this policy uh, has been to try and and uh, make fossil fuels that don't have emission controls on them, make those more expensive, and then to help the country reduce its emissions overall. How do they work in practice? Because I think what happens politically, at least, I know this happens in the U.S. as well, that the moment you bring up the idea of subsidies to oil and gas, all people hear is oil and gas. So people who are, who are sort of in full favor of um, promoting the fossil fuel industry think it's a good idea. And people who are against it obviously think they're all bad. But I gather there is sort of a happy medium here when it comes to uh, not giving inefficient subsidies, but encouraging fossil fuel companies to make efficient choices. Yeah. And indeed, I think the Canadian policy strikes that happy medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it, it's really a, a trailblazer for the G20 countries, which pledged way back in 2009 to all start doing this. Canada doubled down its pledge. My country, the United States, also said some similar things. Other countries have said similar things. Canada is really the only country at scale to really deliver here. And I think the, the key thing here is the politics. This is really hard to do politically because when when there are fossil fuel subsidies in place, like any kind of subsidy, it's not just that the industry that that benefits from those subsidies sees a benefit there. All the communities that are that have emerged around the around the oil sands and around merged around coal mining and all kinds of other activities that historically in various ways have been subsidized, those communities are affected by these kinds of reforms. And so the reform that has to take place is one that is pretty careful. Also targets money to help communities re, uh, re, retool themselves, refashion themselves. That's something that's been going on in Canada for quite a long time. And then also, which pays very close attention to the inefficient nature of the fossil fuel subsidies. So there are carve outs in this policy, for example, for, for uh, subsidies that help uh, apply carbon capture and storage and other technologies that make it possible to use fossil fuels, but with much, much lower emissions, both in Canada and overseas. Because you've been a proponent for quite some time of sort of trying to nudge uh, for government and, and and the private sector to in this capacity to work together uh, to encourage each other that you can't ask uh, corporations to take all the risks at the same time. You can't ask uh, governments to take all the responsibility uh, as well. Uh, and that if they were to collaborate in these forms and there's sort of an incentive for both sides to help each other out, we may reach somewhere where something like carbon capture, for instance, becomes viable and and capable. Yeah, and, and I think many signs are pointing in that direction. It's not just carbon capture. It's also new con- new ways of making hydrogen, uh, new kinds of alternative fuels, some of which could use fossil fuels in various ways but have very low very low emissions. And, and the collaboration is really key. It's key both because the risks have to be shared. If, if the private industry is forced to bear those risks completely, they're going to balk, and that's what we've seen in most countries. That's why we haven't – one of the reasons we haven't made a whole lot of progress in this area. The other reason that collaboration is really important is because – Quite often, we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to create the right carve-outs. We don't know how to create the right programs to help communities that are left behind. We know a lot, but we have to run experiments. And those experiments really benefit from companies and, frankly, communities that are on the front lines that are participating in that and have a strong incentive to go learn better ways of, of spending public money. Yeah. And, and when we look at, um, I mean, one of the things that was interesting about the Canadian example is is the reaction from the industry. And I spent a bit of time in, in sort of the financial sector and the pension fund sector. And of course, we dealt with, with uh, at times with the, with the fossil fuel industry. They're way ahead of a lot of the politicians on this one. The politicians will sort of go to the wall for them, aren't talking the same way from what we heard, at least from, you know, their, their boardrooms, which were much different about this. They've seen the writing on the wall, I think, and understand that this is the way that it has to go. It doesn't mean they're not going to try 
try to squeeze the best deal they could possibly get uh, out of uh, out of the subsidy side of things. But at the same time, they've seen where this is all shifting. I think you talk about that quite a bit. Yeah, and, and I don't think we've seen this in every corner of the fossil fuel industry. Frankly, we haven't seen it in the, every corner of every industry that benefits from subsidy and might have high emissions. But enough firms see the direction of travel that even if all the policies aren't in place right now to to deliver that direction of travel, they're getting ready because they know what they're going to have to do. And they also know that if they can figure out ways to operate without the subsidy or operate with very low emissions and different kinds of policy environments, that then they're going to have an interest in that future. And then they're going to be wanting to work with government more closely to shape those regulations. And we see that across the board. We see this with fossil fuel subsidy reform, including to some degree what's just been announced in Canada, still early days, you know, the policy announcement is just very young. And so we're having these kind of spasmic reactions initially to it, but I think things will settle down. We see this in, in efforts to control methane, which is a very strong greenhouse gas. It's a byproduct of a lot of fossil fuels, all kinds of firms out there doing stuff, learning how to make big reductions in emissions, and then working with government to try and cement those reductions in policy. And that's the pattern we're seeing around the world. And frankly, I think it's one of the reasons there's good news in the fight uh, against global warming as you're seeing more firms and more industries break ranks and invest in that future. David Victor is a professor of innovation and public policy at the University of California at San Diego, uh, who does a lot of work on many things, including uh, how subsidies work in the fossil fuel industry and that their impact on uh, the fight against climate change. David, when you look at why it's been so difficult, and you talked a bit about it earlier, why it's been so difficult for for countries to kind of get over the hurdle here, uh, part of it, of course, is the politics. Part of it is the rhetoric. I think you've pointed out in the past that people who, who aren't convinced that this needs to be done are not not going to be convinced by chalk and a blackboard. They need different arguments here. Are we getting better at that, do you think? I think we're getting a little better at it. This new Canadian policy is going to help a lot because it's going to show here's here's how to do it. Here are the kinds of exceptions. Uh, here's some of the political reactions. And and so that, that that will help other countries a little bit. I think we still have to recognize that many of the large countries have a lot of subsidies in place and the political support for them is so is so firm that it's going to be really really hard to 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 roll that back. In that sense, the you know the current government in Canada and the political constellations in Canada are are maybe not unique, but they're quite special across the G20 countries. When you look at how the subsidies work, I, I mean, I think I, I was reading an interview you gave. It wasn't a study that you were involved in, but it was an, it was something that came out on Scientific American maybe four years ago that uh, showed that ending fossil fuel subsidies wouldn't exactly have the magic bullet impact on on CO2 emissions, though, either, that this is just one thing in many. We, we pay a lot of attention to it because it seems to be a bit of a flashpoint. But in many ways, it, it's just one of many tools out there, an important one, mind you, but but not necessarily a panacea. Yeah, I mean, and it's certainly the case that there are actually very few magic bullets, if any, out there. Some people call it magic buckshot. So you've right. got lots of different things that have to be done. There are two things here that are really, really important about subsidy reform. One is that when you reduce, when you eliminate these inefficient subsidies, then you create a very clear demand in the marketplace and the signal about the direction of travel. That's really important. It helps reduce distortions across the across the economy. The other thing that is important is subsidies cost a lot of money. And this may be of lesser importance in Canada, the United States, other very wealthy countries. But in many, many countries, government budgets are really, really tight and a lot of money goes to these subsidies. And so by reforming the subsidies, you free up financial resources that can be used for other purposes, including helping communities affected by the subsidy reform. And that's one of the things I think is so interesting about the Canadian policy is that it was announced by the environment minister, but it has the finance ministry all over it. 
And that's key to making a policy, a finance-related policy, uh, economically and politically sustainable. Yeah, I, I think I, I think, and you've pointed this out many times that part of the issue here is painting it only as an environmental issue, when in fact it is. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act, as as strange as that name for it may be, uh, has sort of pointed the way in many ways uh, to, towards the fact that this is in fact an economic issue and not necessarily just certainly not just an environmental one. Yeah, I think you have to hold together the whole country, and the more fractured our politics, the more important it is says a lifelong centrist like myself, the more important it is to identify the center of politics, create policies that don't don't generate a lot of distortions in the economy, and create allies over time so that the policies are less fragile politically. And and the subsidy reform is a great example of that. Lots of air pollution reforms are good examples of that because a lot of kind many kinds of air air pollution have a big impact on local health. Uh, uh, big killers uh, like soot pollution, particulate pollution, and then also have a big impact on the climate. So it's it's bu- building these these political coalitions of lots of different folks who are interested in the policy for a variety of reasons. And you get the impression, though, and even just with the initial reaction to Canada's announcement, that our announcement, that those on either side of this argument, you know, that those who firmly believe that this needs to be done faster uh, and firmer are not happy. And those who think that this should be entirely left alone, that this is all. I mean, the argument was out this week that there are no subsidies to the fossil fuel industry in this country at all. Um, I mean, you know, it depends how you suppose you def- how, how vastly you define how narrowly you define uh, subsidy. Um, but in this case, what do you tell people on the either on the either I don't want to call them extremes but people who aren't happy who will probably never be happy unless they get their own way on this what, what do you say to them well I'd say that this is a very clear sign of the direction of travel and so if you're for example running a company or you're in a community whose existence depends a lot on subsidy at least written in expansive term in the expansive definition of, of subsidy which is the way the Canadian policy is is written it's any of these distortions that are directly targeted at producing just uh, um, fossil fuels that without emissions controls if you're in one of those settings you should expect that this is the very clear direction of travel and you should be preparing for a different kind of future and and I think that's the one of the most important lessons. The other lesson I think I'd focus communities on is are these exceptions, you know, exceptions for for support for big emissions reducing technologies, exceptions in some uh, some areas that are that are highly distressed economically, and 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 those exceptions I think we have to see how these play out. But those exceptions could be a very very important part of keeping the Canadian rule politically sustainable, even if some folks on on the, on the uh, political left and the environmental left are upset about those exceptions. Yeah. Um, I mean, it feels like there has to be some compromise in here or it just won't fly, right? Therein lies part of the issue. Do you think this will have, I mean, clearly other countries are watching to see how this one lands uh, since Canada is one of the first to step on, step out onto the ledge here. Yeah, I think other countries are watching. You know, this is not a new topic for for anybody. The, the G20, as I mentioned a little while ago, laid out a very clear, one of the first things it did was lay out a very clear communique about uh, inefficient fossil fossil subsidy reform. The United States and China, among others, were were in the lead there. They didn't go off and implement those changes. And so this is something a lot of countries have been struggling with. So I think the Canadian experience will point one way forward, but every country is going to have to deal with its, its own politics internally. David Victor, thank you so much for your time. Ben, really great to be with you. Thank you. Think you are Mick Jagger, a god who walks as man. He's Mick Jagger. That's his name. One of the greatest musicians in the history of rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger!
crisis. I'd never seen anything so rebellious in my life. Some guy yells out, get your hair cut. <laughs> and Mick says, and I'll never forget these words, what, and look like you. <laughs> picture yourself at the age 60 doing what you do now yeah easily yeah mick jagger of course turns 80 today amazing I mean, his birthday, technically, he's, he's probably in the UK, right? So it's already over. But, uh, you know, out here on the West Coast and in Alberta and in Manitoba, he's not quite not 80 yet. Right? So our, he's still 80 today. It's his birthday. Uh, Glennie, we were asking about your favorite uh, Rolling Stones songs. One of my favorite Rolling Stones songs is Off Let It Bleed called Country Honk. Yeah, that's actually, I don't know that one, Glennie. Thanks. I'll have to listen to that one. I, I think I know most of them if I hear them, but not necessarily all off by heart. Um, so, yeah, a celebration today of Mick Jagger turning 80. That's where I started the morning. And then, of course, about midday, we found out that um, another star who'd burned very bright uh, quite quickly, but in a very different way, had passed to Sinead O'Connor at the age of 56. I mean, she'd had many struggles over the years, but was always admired for her authenticity. And she sort of uh, avoided this time uh, limelight, struggled with superstardom in a way that certainly I don't think Mick Jagger ever outwardly has. Uh, but we wanted to both talk about uh, the great longevity of Mick Jagger and the short but very impactful career in many ways of a true original Sinead O'Connor. So uh, he was born, uh, uh, Mick Jagger was back in 1943 in Dartford in England, founded the Rolling Stones in 62 with Keith Richards. Of course, they continue to tour to this day. And uh, guess what? Keith, who's actually five months younger than Mick, if you can believe it, had this little sarcastic birthday greeting for him today. Long may we keep saying this to each other. Oh, happy birthday, Mick. You know, have another good one. And uh, uh, give me a call. Let me know what it's like. Ah. There you go. Keith Richards. The Who's Roger Daltrey said, You've ne you're never going to outfront Mick Jagger. He's the best front man there's ever been. There's no competition at all. Bob Geldof essentially said the same, the greatest showman, the greatest front man of any rock and roll band ever. And it turns out the Rolling Stones, as you may well know, whether it was Keith Richards getting arrested in the 70s or coming back to play Sarstock in the earlier part of this decade, of this century rather, uh, the Stones have had a pretty tight relationship with Canada over the years as well. So we thought we'd dig into all of it uh, to mark his 80th birthday and to talk a bit about Canada, the impact of the Stones overall. And to help us do that, uh, from Winnipeg is John Einerson. He's one of North America's great rock historians. He's written a whole bunch of books, including Desperados, The Roots of Country Rock, Neil Young, Don't Be Denied, and Canuck Rock, A History of Popular Canadian Music. John, thank you. Hey, my pleasure, Ben. 
It's odd, you know, I was thinking back to this morning of all my early memories of Mick Jagger in the 70s and sort of this eternal youthfulness about his rebellion. And then to think of him at 80, it was, it, it, I did a bit of a double take when I saw it. I mean, obviously I knew he was there, but still, it's hard to imagine, it would have hard been hard to imagine Mick Jagger at 80 way back when. Yeah, I don't think anybody in the 1960s when we were first introduced to the music of the Rolling Stones ever thought that they'd still be out doing it at, at age 80. And I think Charlie was over 80 when he when he passed away. No one ever thought that rock and roll would have this kind of longevity to it. It was it was teenage music. It was youth music. It was the, you know a youthful generation coming, you know, uh coming into the 1950s the sense of youthful rebellion. Then it carried on and it carried on and it kept going and going but mutating into so many different branches of this one tree uh along the way. I, I remember when I was a kid and my parents were going to see the Glenn Miller Orchestra and for some reason I knew he was dead. But they were still out there playing, and I could think, but these guys are probably really old. What, are, what, you know, what are they still playing? And here's, you know, Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger at eighty. He looks pretty damn good for eighty. He does. He does. There was a, some famous interview I saw once. I think they were asking Keith Richards. He, Mick, Mick, they were going out on tour, and Mick was talking about his regiment. Now, you know, I'm doing some yoga, and they're like, "Hey, Keith, you know, are you doing any of the same?" He's like, "Are you kidding me?" But yeah, it's amazing that he's he's managed to stay so youthful. You make an interesting point. I mean, I guess musicians have always liked to play for as long as they can. Just what what Mick came out with, what the Stones came out with, was so enveloped in youthful rebellion of its age that it was hard to imagine it too could get old. Exactly. And, you know, the thing is, though, they came out at a time, as did so many others that we all know, and the Beatles and whatever, at you know, the time of the baby boom, and we came we came of age and discovered music and, and our own teenage rebellion. It's this baby boom generation that, 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 that is holding on for dear life to its music and its culture and everything about its, its uh, time frame, uh, carrying it into, into old age. So it makes sense, I guess, that we're still clinging to uh, the Rolling Stones as we remember them. And even though they, they release albums you know, occasionally nowadays, nobody's going to a Rolling Stones concert to hear their latest song. They want to go and hear Satisfaction and Start Me Up and Brown Sugar. They're hearing the songs of their youth, and the Rolling Stones are certainly doing it. I made the mistake. Paul McCartney came to Winnipeg, I don't know, about 15 years ago to perform a great big show at the uh, Winnipeg football stadium or something. Hmm. And I was interviewed by the Free Press, and I referred to Paul McCartney as uh, a nostalgia act. The difference, though, is that Jerry and the Pacemakers are a nostalgia act that's playing your local casino for 300 people. Right. Paul is a nostalgia act playing for, you know, 50,000 people. And a friend of mine who worked for the promoters putting on the show told me the next day that Paul had a newspaper and he read it and he was really mad when he read Interesting. it. Interesting. You're calling me a nostalgia act. But let's face it, everybody's going to hear those old songs. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I went to see Elton John on one of his, the many, you know, the many versions of his final tour. And I was, <laughs> I was stunned by the fact that Elton, you know, without pretense, sat down and banged out the hits. He didn't play anything. Yeah. He didn't go into, you know, I remember the song from when I was young. He just said, I know you're here to hear Betty and the Jets, so I'm going to play it for you. And yeah. I, the Stones are kind of the same too. There's never been, I mean, you know, they went through their different phases, but when they tour now, they know you don't, they, they're not going to turn their backs to the audience and play, you know, they're all their new songs from an album that people, you know, a few people will have heard. They've always been really loyal. I mean, that's part of the love, I think. They've always known what their audience wants. Exactly. And they certainly give it to them. And that's entertainment. I mean, they're they're rock and rollers, but they're also entertainers as well. And you got to keep the audience happy or they're not going to be shelling out to see you again. But, you know, when, when you consider 
you know, concert touring nowadays with the Stones, they make more money off merchandise than they do ticket sales. And that's not to say that, you know, the $500 or $1,000 tickets are pretty overpriced. <laughs> but, I mean, it's all us boomers who want to go to Safeway the next day wearing the, the concert T-shirt. <laughs> it's like a badge of honor. And they can get, you know, they can get a half a million T-shirts probably made up for five bucks a T-shirt and sell them for 60 bucks at their concert. So there's a huge amount of money that's made from that. What I find so amazing about the Stones, too, is just, I mean, the logo itself, just how iconic that became, the, the longevity of the band. Um, when one looks back at those early days, I mean, you can see it now, you know, Mick Jagger on Ed Sullivan, you can sort of see the star appeal. But I, it was kind of hard to differentiate them from all the other very good bands of the time. What do you think allowed the Stones, and Mick specifically, I guess it's partly due to Mick, but allowed them to sort of continue on for so long when so many other great bands of that era didn't? Well, they, they got early on, they got tagged as the bad boys of rock and roll. And, and they were like the anti-Beatles. The Beatles were smiling and had suits on and the Stones were sneering at you with pimples on their faces. So they had they had that that rebellious image that went with the rebellious kind of music. And I remember <laughs> we used to say it back in 65. I'm showing my age here. Good girls like the Beatles. Bad girls like the Rolling Stones. <laughs> which, which is amazing because, of course, the Beatles grew up working class in Liverpool and the Stones grew up like kind of as like, well, middle, upper middle class kids. So there was should have been kind of the opposite. But instead, that's that's what happened. Yeah. And, you know, they, they when they started out, I remember reading back, back in 66, I think it was, I got a book called Our Own Story. It was ghost written. It was supposedly, you know, the, the Rolling Stones telling their whole story, whatever. And they, when they started out, weren't interested in writing songs. They weren't interested in pop hits. They didn't want any of that. They just wanted to present the blues to the unwashed masses. You know, they wanted they wanted to turn the you know the young crowds onto you know Jimmy Reed and Howlin' Wolf and Willie Dixon songs played by Muddy Waters, all of that. They they were they were they were zealots in their crusade to preserve and save and promote the blues. But you know, I mean that 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 only goes so far because you need to have the pop hits in order to maintain any kind of a living. And, you know, it's funny to realize that the Rolling Stones were broke by 1969. Wow. Um, because they made they made so little money, like fractions of a penny on all of their their recordings, really bad, you know, bad contracts that were signed. And it right. wasn't until they it wasn't until they created, uh, you know, their own record label that they began to see profits from from their recordings. But, you know, Keith, Keith Richards said back in the 70s, we had to play live in order to eat, to live, to have money because the record sales were not paying anything. Rock historian John Einerson is with us. Uh, we're talking about Mick Jagger. Turns 80 today. We're talking about the Stones, of course. Uh, John, you've talked about this before. The band did have a really interesting relationship with this country. I was listening to their live at the Alma Combo back in 70, it was made in 77. But their experiences in Canada far predated that. Yeah, they when they first toured North America in uh, the summer of 1964. And it's interesting that when the Beatles arrived in February of 64, I mean, they arrived to pandemonium. I mean, they were already huge and, and touring, you know, big arenas everywhere. But the Stones had to work at it. And and they 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 consistently toured every few months, coming to North America and playing and, and be, gradually building up the audience for their, I mean, the big break came in, in 65, in the spring of 65, first with the last time becoming a top five hit, followed by Satisfaction becoming number one, followed by we'd Get Off of My Cloud being number one. But they had to work at it. And when they would tour, they would dip their feet into Canadian cities, Toronto, Montreal, London, Ontario, Vancouver. They weren't coming out, you know, out to the boondocks of, of Winnipeg at that point then. But we were part of, 
you know, a whole list of gigs for a tour across North America. It's in 66 that they start playing more, uh, more of, I guess, what you would consider the smaller centers, which included Winnipeg. They came here in July of, of 1966. And damn, my parents booked our holidays then. And I think oh, we no, were you were away. Duluth or somewhere. Oh, no. oh no. <laughs> I had that happen to me with, with like David Bowie, I think, in 82 or something. But yeah, yeah they, uh, you feel like, and all your friends go, right? So you missed yeah, of course. it. Yeah, of course. Yes. And, and But it's not really until, until kind of the early 70s where Canada becomes a big part of, of the Rolling Stones story. And it really does start with Keith Richards' uh, arrest at uh, the Harbour Castle Hotel in February of 1977 for 22 grams of uh, heroin and the whole circus that surrounded them. And as you say, they were coming up to record tracks, playing a live gig at the Elma Combo, which some of those tracks ended up on their Love You Live album. But the circus was in town. And of course, then you get Margaret Trudeau showing up and right. all, all her kind of retinue of, of semi-celebrity type people. And in the cover of McLean's magazine, there's Margaret Trudeau standing there with a cigarette in her hand, you know, with Mick Jagger and Ron Wood on, on you know, or backstage or whatever. If you read Keith Richards' autobiography, Life, he really was scared about what was going to happen to him in Canada. I'm he sure. Was con- he was convinced he was going to go to jail. Uh, because of that, but you know, in the end, the judge understood that that what's you know what is the point of putting this rock star in jail, and he agreed to do I think a concert or two for the CNIB in Oshawa, Ontario. But it developed you know came strangely out of a negative. It developed a, a close relationship with Canada, and what came out of that too was Michael Cole, who became their booking agent, and he booked through the eighties and nineties. He booked all their huge worldwide tours out of Toronto. So they would come up here and often rehearse. And there were a couple of times they rehearsed at a private school, uh, and then they'd move into an airplane hangar, you know, for the whole stage setup and lights and all that stuff. It's funny to think about that. When they started out, they were playing the back room of a pub in, in yeah. Soho in London. And, they and now, they're, now they're rehearsing yeah. in an airplane hangar. Under an assumed name, under, under always some creative name, right? It was never, obviously, never the Rolling Stones. They were always playing under something. It, something it, was the cockroaches, it was the cockroaches when they played the Elma Combo. And I think it was an April Wine where, the, where kind of the headline act then featuring the cockroaches, who nobody knew. Of course, it's probably one of the worst kept secrets uh, in Toronto. But what also solidified their uh, connection to, to Toronto, certainly more so than all of Canada, was the SARS concert in, in 2003, where they were in, in town rehearsing for one of their big, massive world tours. And I think it was an, uh, an MP from Ontario or MP from Toronto, member of parliament, who asked them if they would organize or you know contribute to a concert to bring tourism back to Toronto, because Toronto was turning into a ghost town because of SARS. And they organized that huge, huge concert that had something like 450,000 people showed at it. ACDC were there and Backlund and Cummings came, you know, got together and, and played for that as well. That's right. So, it, again, it, it showed uh, that they were willing to do this for a city that had, you know, again, supposedly been supporting them throughout the, the number of years. Well, no, I like to get old, particularly. I don't think it's anything that everyone loves. Oh, I can't wait to get old. But I don't think enjoying life is an exclusive prerogative of young people. I think it's stupid a lot of ways to behave like you're 17 because it's idiotic. But that doesn't mean to say you have to sort of be an old fart sitting at the pub talking about what happened when in the 1960s. And I get a lot of people saying they really think it's great. People come up to you on the street and sort of the way you are and the way how energetic you are and because they, they see you on stage and it's not really get up in the morning and running about that. but that's how they think. 
John Einerson is a rock historian, the author of several books, including uh, Desperados, The Roots of Country Rock, and others. We're talking about Mick Jagger turning 80 today. Imagine. Um, well, you know, and, there's going to be there's going to be so many cartoons in the newspaper oh, of making yes. a wheelchair or a cane or something. Yeah, yeah, or or sort of then leaping out and doing that strange dance from the Start Me Up video. I, I guess it, it, the Rolling Stones do not make it if they don't have Mick, right? I mean, to me, he's always been. I mean, there's so many other great parts of that band. Charlie Watts is amazing. Ron Wood, Keith Richards, obviously, uh, in the modern incarnation of the band, uh, at least until Charlie Moon passed away. But, I mean, it was really Mick who kind of put them up over the top, I always thought. Well, he became the focal point of the band immediately. Even though it was Brian Jones that put the band together, Brian Jones who took all the bookings, Brian Jones who did all the publicity, did the interviews even, because he was a, he was a little more articulate than uh, Mick. And if you look at some of the early interviews, uh, you know, Brian sounds like a college-educated and, and, and elite, whereas Mick sounds like a, just a, but, but he used to say in England, a yob. Right. Uh, but... You know, Mick came to personify uh, the Stones and the image and, and, and everything ab- about him. I remember once reading a, a review of a show. I think it was the Tammy show they did, the great TNT show, about 65 or so. And the reviewer said Mick Jagger looked like a man who found a bee in his pants. But uh, it, he became the focal point. And what's interesting is he is the Rolling Stones. I mean, yes, Keith Richard is the Rolling Stones. But you could actually, dare I say it, you could actually go out as, as Mick Jagger without Keith Richard as the Rolling Stones. If Keith Richard, God forbid, died tomorrow, they could bring in someone else and people would still go and see him. They could still be legitimately the Rolling Stones. But they couldn't go out without Mick. Mick is the Stones. And what's interesting, too, is that when Mick launched a solo career, I think it was, maybe it was in the 80s or 90s. I remember, I remember that record in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, there were some decent tracks on it, but it didn't really. I mean, that was at a time where the Stones had already kind of, you know, they were starting to fade a bit in terms of the kind of music yeah. they were putting out. But his solo stuff was was OK. It was all right. Yeah. And, and, and but they didn't sell very well. And, no. and the, the reality was people people want Mick with the Stones. People don't really care about Mick as Mick on his own. And uh, I guess maybe for him, that was a bit of an uh, ego shattering experience because he is, he personifies the band. And that's, that's what people want is Mick Jagger out front, dancing and singing, doing start me up. (laughs) Yeah. Singing those 40 songs that everyone knows off by heart. What kind of influence has he had? I mean, you've done so much work on different artists, especially Canadian artists and, you know, Americana, really the kind of rock that, that came from here. A lot of it, oddly enough, the very same stuff. Well, it came from the very same roots that that inspired the Rolling Stones. It just came out different when it was kind of put together, right? The sound was a little bit different from what they were doing in Britain compared to what they were doing here. But what kind of influence did the Stones have on the on the bands that you would then go on to write about? Oh, absolutely. For me, it was my introduction to the blues. That first Rolling Stones album, that one in 12 by 5, which was in Canada, their second album. There was there was stuff there. I mean, I'd never heard of Slim Harpo. I'd, I'd never heard of McKinley Morganfield. I'd never heard of Willie Dixon. I never heard of Rufus Thomas. How would you, All, right? I mean, how would you, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so for me, it meant trying to find some of these records. It, it was my introduction to the blues. And I guess I became so interested in it, I, I would go to the downtown uh, library in Winnipeg, and in the basement, they had records. And they had Slim Harpo albums, and they had Billy Boy Arnold albums, and Muddy right. Waters albums. And I would take the stuff out, and it became my education. But for me, and probably you know, 10 million other teenage pimply-faced guitar players in North America, we were introduced to the blues from the Stones, and from the Animals, and from Manfred Mann, and from them, and the Yardbirds, all of those bands. They introduced us to that whole kind of music that, that went on to change life so much. And when you consider that, you look at 
hard rock, which came out, you know, 69, really 68, 69 is when we see hard rock emerging. And that would become classic rock of the 70s kind of thing. And it, it, it was blues based. So yeah. it's the Stones who started off really in 63 playing again, as I said before, you know, blues crusaders. That music carried on and had a fantastically huge influence. And still it, that influence is being felt today on, uh, on rock and roll. It's, and you, you would know there's an incredible photo of you opening for Led Zeppelin in Winnipeg. <laughs> Just an incredible photo. I, if anyone looks up John Einerson, Led Zeppelin, I absolutely recommend it. And so you had you saw that firsthand because, of course, Zeppelin would be the second generation of that same uh, evolution of the blues exactly. into rock. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and out of that, of course, that that begat, you know, Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and, and all of that that came out of Led Zeppelin. But. It's it's kind of like you couldn't have had a Led Zeppelin unless you had the Rolling Stones first, and you couldn't have had a Yardbirds unless you had the Rolling Stones first, because the Yardbirds sort of followed in the footsteps of the Stones playing bluesy kind of stuff, and it just kind of explodes from there. When I'm when I'm teaching courses on on uh, the British invasion, I always very you know define for people that there are two there are two elements to the British invasion. The first is what we call Mersey Beat, and that's you know the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers right. and Freddie and the Dreamers, the Liverpool which stuff. Is all, huh? Yeah, and 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 even though it's not all Liverpool, because you could put the Hollies in there, but the Dave Clark Five in there, Peter and Gordon in there, it's all light poppy boy girl stuff. But you know, by summer of '64, we're starting to hear "House of the Rising Sun." You really got me. I can't explain. You know, these kind of these kind of songs that have a harder edge. Time is on my side. These kind of songs have a harder edge to them, and they're coming out of the London rhythm of Lucy. So that's the second wave of the British invasion. So, you know, if a radio station this weekend is having an all British invasion weekend, you could hear Freddie and the Dreamers followed by my generation. But the gulf and the gap between those two styles of music is huge at that time. And there's not a single person today, and I swear to God, that is going to be interviewed and say, yeah, Freddie and the Dreamers were a huge influence on me. No, no. but they're going to say the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Who, you know, all the, them, they had a big influence on me. Yeah, it was their sound that 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 lasted. I mean, till this day, here yeah. we are. I mean, you know, more than nearly, I guess, it's sixty years for the Stones and Mick Jagger at, at eighty. I was asking, what, in terms of their their influence on Canadian bands, did you see that firsthand at all? I mean, you don't hear it much in the likes of a Randy Bachman or a or a Neil Young or you know or or, or Buffalo Springfield. But I, I I can suspect that part of it was there, or maybe there was a bit of an anti Stones thing going on. Oh, no, every band, every city had a Rolling Stones type band. Uh, and as I said, all of a sudden bands were playing uh, Walking the Dog and uh, right. I'm a King Bee and that sort of thing. I remember the, the, the Ugly Ducklings coming to Toronto in 66. And their rhythm guitar player, Glenn Bell, even had the Brian Jones kind of blonde Prince Valiant haircut. And they had a raw R&B sound. What's funny is they were the opening act for the Stones when the Stones played, um, I guess, at Maple Leaf Gardens in 64, 65. And they must have picked up a lot of musical ideas from them. And in Montreal, we had the Haunted, who also kind of had that 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 kind of sneery Rolling Stones uh, image and kind of hard rhythm and blues, bluesy rock sound as well. And and uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I was involved recently in, in a documentary film production that looks at um, John Kay. You know, who came to Canada from Germany and, you know, and then got involved with Sparrow, who became Steppenwolf and looking at the roots of Steppenwolf sound in Toronto. And it's that rhythm and blues sound, that 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 R&B sound that you heard from Toronto bands in the 1960s, like the Mandela and, and others of that, you know, Robbie Lane and the Disciples. 
and and it, it comes from hearing those R and B songs and rhythm and blues music that the Stones were also playing. Best frontman, do you think? I mean, I, it's hard to think of a better one. It's hard to think oh, of one I, who's I, better. Yeah, like hands down. Yeah, to me, yeah. But you know, I give a. I for sure. I mean, all my life I've said that for sure. Mick Jagger is the greatest frontman. But I got to give props to Freddie Mercury. Yes, Freddie Mercury. I mean, when you watch Freddie Mercury, it was live at the eight or whatever it was. Um, you know, eighty thousand people there. I mean, he just says it in the palm of his hands. He's he's he he became the Mick Jagger of the next generation, I guess. But yeah, Mick Jagger. When people look back on on rock and roll music, God knows where it's going to be in fifty years or whatever. Mick Jagger will be be the guy. He he is the ultimate rock and roll frontman. Yeah, he sort of he is the mold, right? He is the mold yes, of what each yes. each and every one came after. Uh, you know, uh, speaking of of mu- music and artists, um, I, I was saddened today to see the the passing of Sinead O'Connor at the age of fifty six. An artist who, when her first album came out back in eighty seven, I loved that record. You know, I'm sort of you could tell by my family name O'Hara Byrne. It's of Irish descent, so at the time I was sort of you know reading Irish books, and I thought, wow, this this woman is so cool. Um, it was really sad. I mean, she'd had her struggles over the years, but sad to see uh, her. Pass- passing uh today and and you know she did she like a bit like mick uh she did she was a memorable figure in a music in an industry that often turns out uh forgettable human beings for or forgettable artists sometimes yeah and and um it's not like she had tons of hits you know nothing compares to you probably her best known song but people are going to remember for her for her uh, outspoken stance on issues and in particular you know against the roman catholic church she wasn't afraid to speak her mind and she made enemies and she made you know fans and supporters for it. And we're going to remember her more, I think, for her uh, social and political stance than for the music, because in many ways, the music became her platform to be able to to express her feelings and opinions. Uh, and, and we'll remember her in a positive way for that. I, I think so. I mean, I think what stood out for, about her was was there was an authenticity to her. And we realized, yes, of course, and yes. that's not something we talked about in the 80s at all. But her and she's talked about it at length since her struggles with mental health, her struggles with uh, abuse yes. as a child at the hands of her mom and so on. I mean, she talked about this quite extensively as time went on. But at that time, the rawness of, and the and the authentic, authenticity of what she was able to do uh, kind of stood out to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, although it's come kind of almost like a parody nowadays, uh, I remember watching Saturday Night Live when she pulled out the picture of the Pope and ripped it apart and just being, oh, oh my God, she, yeah. did, she, she dared to do that. And she took an awful lot of flack for that as well. But I mean, kudos to her for being willing to do that without worrying about, well, I'll never get invited back to this show again, to take, to take a stand in, in such a very public way. Yeah, I, I think uh, perhaps unlike Mick Jagger, I think uh, a young Sinead O'Connor had no idea or at least no interest in being famous. And I suppose in some ways it was the likes of Mick Jagger and all those singers who'd come before who'd created what we now understand to be rock and roll fame that created the very template that someone like Sinead O'Connor re- would rebel against. Right. It's interesting that they, the rebel became someone that you would rebel against, you know, 30 years later. Yeah, Exactly. Well, John Einerson, thank you so much for, uh, for for joining me. Much appreciated your insights on on Mick Jagger, the, the longevity of a wonderful guy, Mick Jagger, a wonderful artist, Mick Jagger, and sadly the passing of uh, Sinead O'Connor, far too young. My pleasure, Ben. Anytime. 